As a reminder, content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investor or potential investors in any Inovia fund. Please note that Inovia and its affiliates may also maintain investments in the companies discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Inovia Sessions, your gateway to the world of tech entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Inovia Capital Principal, Mike McGraw, coming to you from London. If you're looking to navigate the intricacies of the North American landscape, the door to America is here for you. Discover real world insights from founders who've cracked the North American market and arm yourself with strategies to scale your tech company. On today's Inova sessions, we're diving into the early day challenges of entering the American market as a B2B SaaS company. We'll hear from Isabel Guise, Global CMO and North American CEO of Brevo, and Françoise Bouguer, Executive Advisor at Inovia, who have both been successfully navigating this landscape. In this episode, we touch on their practical 70-30 rule in campaign localization, the intricate dance of forming partnerships, and the absolute vitality of customer references when entering a new landscape. If you're wondering how to adapt your go-to-market for North America, or how to approach culture internationally, this is the episode for you. We're getting into practical advice, real-world experiences, and actionable takeaways. No fluff, just valuable insights for anyone looking to grow in the tech space. So let's jump right in and hear what our experts have to say. Stick around for a conversation that's sure to equip you with the tools and knowledge you need for global expansion. Before we go into the actual topic of today, which is international expansion, especially from a B2B perspective, it'd be great to spend a few minutes on each of your background and works experiences. Um, maybe we can start with you, Isabel. Sure, happy to. So um, I'm originally French, as most of your uh, listeners can figure out by now. Uh, I grew up in the south of France, uh, was trained as an engineer, and I started working uh, in Paris uh, on speech recognition. So I was, I guess, at the time, an AI engineer 20 years ago. And, uh, and after a few years, I moved to the Bay Area in Silicon Valley in 2001. Meantime, you know, I transitioned from engineering product to marketing, and I've been here for 22 years, working mainly in high tech and, you know, large companies, startups, and for the last 10 years, more in SaaS, uh, obviously, uh, as the world has changed and uh, the pace of the business is going faster. That's fantastic. So you can claim to be an AI engineer before it was actually cool. Exactly. Before it was called AI. Yes. Francoise, can you just also walk us through your background quickly? Yes. I have been in the Valley now for almost 30 years. Um, most of my experience has been on the West Coast and the United States in companies like Google, Square, and Pinterest. That's great. For our listeners, I think it was such a coincidence, Isabel, when we finally connected and we say, wait, you're from Marseille? We know someone from Marseille. And we have like the two Marseillais, I don't know how to say this with an English accent, that are in the valley and they ended up having paths that might have crossed in the past. We don't know, but it's a... Quite the coincidence there. Before we talk about the North American expansion itself, Isabel, can you just give us like the elevator pitch for what Brevo is? Sure. So uh, Brevo is a French uh, company. Actually, we have the status of Centaur, which is a startup in SaaS that achieved 100 million ARR. And we just achieved this in January. So we're very proud of, uh, of that. Uh, we deliver a marketing platform where a uh, customer can actually engage um, doing marketing campaigns and automating them over uh, chat, WhatsApp, SMS, email, and, and name it. And we recently announced actually our sales platform where you can also now manage your pipeline, meet with customers, do video calls, and invoice them. So um, Brevo is a global company. We have 500,000 customers. 
uh, and you know we are really more into the small business mid market, I will say, and uh, growing very fast into North America. That's fantastic! Congratulations on the centaur status. That is quite Thank the milestone. You. Um, a little story that actually I don't think I told you back in the days. We've known Breville for probably two years over at Inovia. And my own mom is an entrepreneur, but like a micro business. So she has her magazine. She's been publishing it for 20 years, kind of really slow and steady business. And when I was first introduced to Breville, which was sent in blue back in the days, I told my mom about it. Hey, take a look at this. You know, it seems to be for businesses, you know, like yours and bigger. Forgot about it for six months. And then I caught up with her at some point and she's like, oh, Mike, I need to tell you this changed my life. And to me, that was such a powerful, fantastic moment of why I want to be a VC or just generally in tech to help people build their own businesses and then kind of the multiplier effect. Oh, thank you so much, Mike. You made my day. I will tell you, this is the DNA of the company. Even now we serve, you know, Louis Vuitton, Michelin, Decathlon at our core. We love being able to impact um, businesses of all size. So thank you for sharing. Yeah, of course. I mean, you should be proud. I think it's absolutely fantastic. Okay, so you joined Brevo, I think, around April this year. Can you tell us a bit more about how did the connection happen and why was it such a good fit on both sides? Sure. Uh, well, it was a little bit of uh, serendipity, to be honest. Uh, and we met and it, I cannot believe how, I mean, I think it was meant to be, but it was really not on purpose. Uh, as, as you know, Brevo has been growing uh, very fast. Um, and but also the fastest growth in terms of new revenue is coming from North America. And they're also growing very fast into uh, mid-market and enterprise, so higher end of the market. And so I was able to have this experience, but also as they wanted to grow in North America, since this is where I really I spend most of my career and I know the market very well, I was able to make a bridge between how we grew and Brevo is a very French company, grew up with the GDPR environment and all of this, but how to translate that into strengths for uh, a North American market that's very diverse, but very different as well from Europe. So it's been a great match so far. That's fantastic. And, and why would you say now was the right time for Brevo to, to double down on North America? Oh, it's for so many reasons. Um, I, I do think first, you know, we represent already 20% of new revenue for Brevo. The company has been growing between 30 to 40% year over year. And in North America, funnily enough, a lot of other vendors in the CRM space have been built in North America. People are telling me, but such a mature market. Why do we need one more CRM? And actually you do. Because there is still, in spite of all the solution, a very much underserved market with people like your mom, but also mid-market customer mm -hmm. where all the more established player, US player, older player are focusing on the Fortune 1000. And they are really leaving a big mm -hmm. space for companies who are growing, who will be the next Google of this world. But, you know, today they don't want the complexity, they want the simplicity, but still the sophistication or platform can bring. So I think now is a good time because there is no other player doing this. Uh, and also, you know, ease of use and fast return on investment is never old. No, that makes total sense. And today we want to talk because Brevo is so early in its journey, right? We want to talk about the planning of it and a little bit about the market insights that obviously with incredible backgrounds like yours, we can go deeper into later. But Isabel, as far as the planning goes, can you tell us a little bit more around the research that was done before the decision to expand and what you're tracking during that expansion? Absolutely. So we got very lucky to have a lot of data 
because by being present online only, people starting buying us without even, you know, us really promoting it in North America. And so that gave us a good sense. So what we found out is obviously also there is a lot of businesses, you know, uh, it's easy to set up a business in the US. They are drive formidable, not just the big company, but all those business across the US formidable economic power. And so we realized what are the top states, most of the small businesses and the market uh, in mid-market are California, Texas, New York, Florida. But then we also sell to all the other states online. We found that with verticals, we're the one that, you know, we're using technology, digital marketing or sales more than others. And, you know, the characteristic of the customers in North America are very different than the one in Europe. They adopt online tools very fast, more easily, but they churn on you if they're not happy very fast as well. The size uh, is different. The customer acquisition cost is different. So all of this we have to adapt. And also the competition is very different. But, you know, the good news is because Brevo was built in Europe, we had a lot of regulations, we had a lot of languages and all of that, you know, help us build a product from scratch that could had different regulation for California or different verticals that could have multiple languages that were built in with this, you know, capabilities that a market like the US will require. So I think it's actually a strength for them to come from a European background where the market's smaller, but still very complex. That's such an interesting way to put it, right? I think too often the stereotype will be that Europeans can focus on their kind of regional national market and nothing outside the box. But the European DNA by itself, as you said, like different cultures, different adaptation to markets, GDPR, which is not necessarily bulletproof, but if you come to the US with GDPR, you're in a pretty good damn position, right? Like it is very much an asset to be a European firm if you have the ambition to scale it fast enough, right? Yes. And if you understand the new market and the differences, which is exactly yeah. what you asked, like you did your market research, you know, so yeah, absolutely. And I'm curious, you know, Francoise, with you, you're obviously you've been building your career in the US, but you've had, you know, you've worked in positions at companies that have massive global footprints and you're also on the board of quite a few European businesses. In terms of your observations of the biggest differences between the two markets? Yeah, I, I think there is something that sometimes Europeans misunderstand. The US is not one country. I think Isabel touched on it, like Texas, Florida, California, New York are huge states. And they have very different pattern in terms of businesses, consumers. And it's very easy when you are in face with such a large TAM to think you can attack it at once. I can give you an example of Square, which was a domestic company and the TAM was huge, but we never attacked the market at once. So we had very targeted efforts around city. So for example, we decided every business in Portland, Oregon was going to have Square because from the market research, we understood the number of coffee store and small store per capita in Portland is very high. And the amount of food traffic was very high. So we decided, and it was a manageable size for us to go after. So we took Portland and we took over Portland. Uh, so it was not a broad strategy. We took coffee shop and restaurant. We didn't take initially retail. A bit of a spray and pray. Isabel, I'm curious on that line of thought, you said, you know, Brevo already had some customers in the US before the actual expansion itself. Did you have critical mass of data to already say, hey, 
those are the verticals and you mentioned the geos already but the verticals and really where we should kind of focus our attention in the first x amount of time absolutely absolutely and they're very similar to europe in a way like the top three are the same but media is probably more in new york so even if for the country, this is one of the top vertical, we know that it's not across the country, it's in New York. High tech is in California. So there is this additional level of complexity compared to having the top and same vertical in France, while probably concentrated around Paris, where here, you know, you're going to have also to pick your state and do a combination. But I mean, I would tell you, Bravo is a very horizontal platform. So just like Francoise, we could pretty much, we have customer in all the segments. And they find us online anyway, and we welcome them. But when you have to focus on your activities, you do need to focus yeah. on the states, on the vertical more to really have a meaningful impact. Yeah, that's perfect. Like the devil's in the details, right? And like, I think the focus ensures success or at least optimizes the. Correct. And, and you can also measure it much faster because otherwise you are stuck in the law of the randomness and large number. Um, so even so you are growing well because the market is so big, you are not actually reaching your full potential when, if you don't deploy very specific marketing and sales activity. Yeah, that's incredible advice. Coming back to the planning journey, the market research, I'm curious to know, you know, we have the two interesting perspectives around the table of like, Isabel, how did Bravo's board get involved? And is it more of a planning? Was it an approval? Is it more of a follow-up phase? And then Francoise will get you as like the, the board member point of view as well. They're really actually willing to invest in growth and rapid growth in terms of, you know, their review and their involvement. They're definitely more interested in a growth plan than reviewing if we're running operations properly. That's not their top concern. They're really more about, you know, what's next for the products, what's next in terms of, you know, North America, what's next in terms of going up market, you know, with bigger customers. And, and that's a very encouraging and growth-oriented mindset, which I think is a great culture fit with the company. Yeah. You, you would hope that a CRM company, which is a product about sales, would have a good sales motion. <laughs> yes. and, and, and it's funny you say, you, you mentioned the alignment between the board and the, the executives. I remember my first or second meeting with, with Armand, the CEO, we'd gone for lunch. And then he was basically telling me how he was annoyed at being profitable. He's like, Mike, like, I want to grow faster. But I, he also, you have a lot of discipline, right? So I think it's something that Brevo does extremely well is kind of walking that line of, of efficient growth ultimately. So, so props to you for that. Thank you. We had no choice. When you look at 500,000 customers, you, like if you're not efficient, you're just going to drown in, under cost. That kind of also of the way we were built forced us to have that discipline, to have this cost efficiency that now allows us to be able to invest in less cost efficient, but probably bigger tickets, uh, bets like North America, like bigger customer, like expanding to a sales platform. So yeah, makes sense. And, and so, Francoise, as a board member, I think you're currently on three different boards, two of which are out of Europe. Can you tell me a little bit what you see your role is in terms of helping the company think through their operations on both sides of the, of the pond? Yeah, so for me, the advantage of being a US-based board member is I do understand this market and I'm also quite connected in the market. So the first things you can do very tactically is connect your executive to other executive in the North American market in adjacent or related businesses. So that's something that is very tactical, but it's valuable. If I can introduce you to a CMO of a, of a big company and you can go and talk to them, it's helpful. So there is one, which is your contact and your relation. 
Um, two, when you start having a team on the ground, and I think I would say it's for larger companies, there is always this misunderstanding between the headquarter and the subsidiary, especially when the subsidiary, if you wish, is actually bigger and can completely switch the gravity center of the company. So if suddenly in Isabel's case, you know, it's fantastic that she has both culture, but imagine the North America became over 50% of the Bravo business. What does it mean for the company? How do you work together? Where are the executive? All these questions are really important to address heads on because when it's an afterthought, then you don't reach, yeah, going back to growth, you don't reach your growth potential because it's all boiled down to ability to work with talent, uh, wherever they are. So you can help a lot, debunk some of the meat, help them understand what's look good in the U.S. market from a talent perspective and understand that the way of working may differ. It doesn't mean they are less efficient or, um, or less productive. But no, Francois, I think this is such great advice for the listeners that be it founders or executives, operators, how do you leverage your board, right? I, I see that quite often of people that are trying to think through and I'm, I'll ask the founders, like, what did your board say? And they're like, well, I don't know, I haven't asked or like they, they haven't necessarily raised their hand and, and made sure that people will collaborate. And ultimately that's our job as investors, like we're there to help the companies. And if for whatever reason, this isn't a network that they have, that's fine, they can say it, but, but definitely these are discussions that need to happen, right? Correct, and, and I think you can ask a lot of things to your board. They may not tell you yes, they may tell you, no, I can't, no, I'm not connected, no, I don't understand this. Um, but I find companies that are the best uh, using board member are the ones that ask a ton of questions. And in between board meetings, we reach out and say, hey, can you help me with this and that? And I think uh, like this is our fiduciary duty. They have to help this company achieving their potential. So I, I think it can be. But you're right, it doesn't happen all the time and it's built on trust and trust is also built over time. I'm curious if we look at the other side of it in the planning, there's unknown unknowns. There are knowns unknowns. What are they in, in the planning for you? Oh, the known unknowns for me is really more external factors. Obviously, things you don't control. And, and I will say the competition uh, is for me what I've been watching out the most. First, you know, right now, um, they may not have heard of us or they did, but they didn't think we were in the same market. Obviously, as we're growing, expanding, we will meet them. I mean, I've already talked to many customers and we're displacing. It's not, it's not a market. Everybody somehow as a CRM where, where we're an enterprise, maybe not, you know, a new businesses like your mom, where it's a green field. But as soon as you have a business running, everybody has one. So we do displace a lot of them. And we don't know. It's a fast market. So Mailchimp got acquired by Intuit. Um, you know, Usport, Salesforce keep innovating. And for me, that's the most, uh, that's the biggest unknown. What's their next move? Claudio is going IPO. It's going to be interesting to watch as well. And, uh, and how will the market and the competition answer? Yeah, that's a very fair point. Francois, I'm, I'm curious to know if that's something you have any rule of thumb there, especially at Square, right? Because there were payment terminals. Some people were actually quite underserved, I'm sure. I don't know if, was it 100% of your business or which ones did you have to fight off from incumbents versus Greenfield? And at what point did you feel like the incumbents were pushing back? I do think initially it was an unserved market. So when you start by the bottom of the SMB, you know, we started with Nanny and Dog Walker. They clearly was not served with payment processing. So that was a very underserved market. But then I, as you move up to market, you get uh, to the competition. In our case, our technology was so superior and our value proposition was so simple 
that people understood very quickly. I think going up market, it's, it's a different conversation. Um, it's also then, you know, really understand the economic of your business. Um, because generally SMB, you know, you have some leeway on pricing. When you get to a competition that established a pricing and is willing to fight, uh, here come the complexities, the trade-off and the decision you have to make. Do you really want this customer base? So it's a more nuanced and complex answer. A lot of it involved pricing, but pricing has a huge impact on your brand and your positioning in the market. Mm -hmm. so you can't just fight on pricing because that's not the right battlefield necessarily. That's super interesting. Okay, if we if we shift gears a little bit from, from the planning to the hiring and the culture. So it's not every day that you come across a company of your scale that is doing this kind of expansion. So I think it's very interesting to think about the center of gravity and how that might move and how you're going to adapt to all of this. First things first, launching in the US, is everyone going into one office? Are you fully hybrid or remote? Or how did you make that decision, Isabel? Well, I'm, I'm still working on it, but I will tell you for me that number one priority is to be where the customers are. That's what drive everything else. And, and, and the good news is because the culture at Bravo is very customer centric, everybody understands that. Mm -hmm. And in terms of, you know, where and the time zones, you know, passing it to you, Francoise, I'm curious, can you give us a quick uh, US 101 of what some of the hubs are having been, you know, at Google and Square? For a founder that's thinking about expansion to the US but might not know it intimately, what should they think about in terms of talent hubs? Yeah, you really have to think about talent pool. I can tell you that, of course, the technical talent, you have a better chance to find it in California. I remember having at sales team in Chicago that were quite effective. And uh, if you think about talent more on operation, it's interesting in the US, we need and we understand this to care a little bit more about the heartland or flyover country, depending on where you are and where you stand, you call them. Uh, but I think it's important to try because you get cheaper talent. You get talents that actually move less because they are the ones that already stay in the heartland. Um, so th there is good reason to be in places like Kansas City, for example. It's uh, actually a way wealthy place where you can get talent. So um, just sometimes it's worse to go off of the beaten path. Another hot topic when it comes to the expansion into the US is what what happens with the C-suite, right? So who stays in, in Europe, who moves to the US, or who do we hire in the US in, in your case, Isabel? Can you just expand a little bit on your title and how that decision was made? So yes, uh, in addition of being CMO, I'm also CEO in North America. And um, so back to the concept, you know, of do you need a CEO in another country as you expand? I will tell you five, 10 years ago, I think that was kind of a requirement from VCs that if, let's say, a French company wanted to expand in the US, the CEO probably had to move to New York or to you know, an office somewhere. It has changed quite significantly, uh, but I do think what they really wanted and what is important as you do that is really to understand the market. And what better way to understand the market if you have your C-suite uh, knowledgeable about the dynamics, uh, understanding what's changing and approving the strategy because they have more background. So 
uh, obviously I've been living here, so that was much easier for Armand to uh, to leverage my knowledge and be a proxy for him than he moving here. He's coming on a regular basis and making sure the entire C-suite knows what's going on in the market. Uh, you know, also there is so many ways to communicate now. Uh, they can follow the press, we can be on Slack, they're flying once in a while here. Uh, and I make sure, you know, they meet all the right people about new technology. So uh, I don't think it's as necessary, but it is important to have one executive or two uh, who are in market for sure and understands it, but not the entire C-suite or, you know, not moving the CEO per se. Yeah, it probably depends also to a fair extent on the type of customers that the business is going after, you know, B2C versus B2B enterprise, SMB, et cetera, and the scale of the business, right? So a lot of guests on the podcast so far have told me, and that's also what I'm observing in, in the small sample size is that it's either businesses go very early or then they go very late. And so, you know, I'd assume at the very late stage, there are, and, and catering to SMB mint market, there's a lot more flexibility around how that needs to be done versus if you're in the first or second year and trying to sell into a massive contract. Um, might be better to have the CEO at that point or to have critical mass, as you say. Absolutely, absolutely. My understanding of the market is based on a lot of analytics, which is very rational that, you know, all the C-suite has access to. As we get bigger, obviously, they want a local presence and executives they can talk to. They know that you're committed to stay, that if there is a problem, somebody in their time zone is going to be here uh, to pick up the phone. So, yes. It really depends on the market you go um, you go after and and the time in your growth that you're moving there. You kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier. How do you tweak the messages and whatnot? I'd be remiss of not having a, a little section here on marketing and just go to market more generally. Having two such heavyweights in the industry, I, I think I owe it to the world to go a little bit deeper in this. Isabel, as you said tweak the messaging a little bit, you know, French might be a bit more philosophical. And whereas the US, there's more transactional or ROI driven. Do you have other rule of thumbs like this as founders should think about how they're going to Americanize their messages for the US market? Absolutely. Don't lose your identity, your culture and the product is the same. However, to your point, Mike, when we do, we need to relate to our customers and our customer, you know, have different priorities, different way to communicate and different things that resonate with them. And so um, when we execute, though, the strategy is the same across the board, the product is the same, the culture is the same, but the execution has to be very localized. And, you know, I mentioned uh, on the messaging front, obviously, also even on the product front, there are features that are more popular, like WhatsApp. We can do marketing campaign on WhatsApp. Obviously, in Europe, people use WhatsApp a lot more than the US, where SMS and email are still predominant. However, if you want to do communication with video, WhatsApp is getting popular in the US too, but you do have to understand that and talk about what they want to hear. Uh, if I do a WhatsApp campaign in the US, it's not going to resonate as well. Also, the communication channels are different. In North America, analyst firms like Garner, Forrester, IDC have a lot more weight than in Europe, for instance. Customer references. People want customer reference in their own country, in their own language. They feel that, you know, we understand the market if there is peers of theirs in their country that actually approve or, you know, validate the product. So all of this you have to factor in as you, um, as you enter new countries and as you sell to different markets. Yeah, that's a very good point. Francois, same same thoughts. I've seen you nodding. Yeah, that's correct. Like the, you know, the last mile of the marketing execution has to be localized. So what I call the last mile is, you know, 
um, the way you communicate, the media you use, the creative you use is a little bit different depending on the market. But still, I would still push people to try to find commonality uh, versus trying to hyper-localize. So um, I'm always on the sense of you can gain scale and efficiency if you try to uh, get as much as you can from your global platform. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a very interesting. Is that you're with and say agree with this as well? Is that how you think about it? Yeah, I was always telling my my team is for me the seventy percent thirty percent rule is you know like when we do campaigns and so mm-hmm. forth we create global campaigns and that's seventy percent of what customer everywhere in the world should see. But then 30% is given to the local yeah. team to, like Francois said, you know, purchase media in a different way or word it or create some assets that are very special for the country. But if you go beyond that, you don't have the scale or the efficiency um, that will allow you to grow anyway. And another part of the strategy, which sometimes comes a little bit later, but I'm curious to get your thoughts around what should be the right timing is partnerships. And so maybe, you know, starting with you, Francois, having you know, been on the table of these giant companies that obviously everyone wants to partner with, how do you get on their radar? Is it a, about scale or is it really about the value that you bring to them? What usually does that equation look like on the partner side? I think there is two kinds of partnership. There are the distribution partnership and there are the product partnership. So I do think there is people you partner with because you are missing some feature, like for example, tax feature that you don't have for whatever reason, because tax is complicated, especially in a country like the US, that's 50 states. So if you are in the payroll space, for example, payroll is by 50 states. If you are moving money, you need to have money transmitting license in every state. So this is what I would call product partnership that you do. So you are not going to have to rebuild everything you can actually use. If you're a fintech, you need to find a bank, for example. You're not going to get a bank license in the US that easily. So you need to figure out the product partnership. They are actually pretty straightforward because there are companies that provide this infrastructure to everyone. I think the most interesting is distribution partnership. When you have um, similar clients uh, and you want to make sure um, you access uh, a customer base that is interesting to you. The biggest mistake in partnership is trying to partner with too many people and with people that do not have, it's a game of scale. You want to partner with the one that has the biggest footprint. And they are not the easier to work with because there is, for example, the, the issue on API and make sure that your product can talk to each other, that they can cross sell your product within their product. Uh, and vice versa. So if you are going to do all this development, it's really important that on the other side, there is scale and commitment, both at Square, but also at Pinterest, also at Google. I did partnership with the Shopify-like, the Intuit-like. All these partnerships are helpful, uh, especially if they go deep and they can really cross-sell within product. But it's a lot of effort. Um, both on the technology and on the deal-making side. So pick the partners that is going to bring you the scale because otherwise it's a lot of wasted resources. Yeah. And and I mean, to Isabel's point earlier, it might also lead to some um, other outcomes further down the road, right? If we're thinking about Intuit and MailChimp, for example, that was, that was the kind of, I'm assuming there's a partnership and then that just turns into a very 
key part of the growth strategy on both sides. And so, um, Isabel, how did how did you think about that for Bravo in North America? Well, for me, you know, looking into partnerships, the sooner the better to explore, to keep an open mind, to see what's going on. But uh, to France's point, to have a much deeper commitment at scale that will actually require the change of focus or building new skill set, then you do have to do the proper analysis because it can very well spiral into a, a different business. Also, if you don't have exactly, you say, oh, we're going to make it work, but we only have 50% of our customer in common. Well, 50% is not that much, right? And, and it's going to be a lot of sacrifice and you have to make sure you go into this eyes wide open because it's going to be disruptive for the rest of the market. So right now, I would say for me, I'm talking to a lot of folks. I'm looking where we have the synergies. I don't think that I'm ready yet to commit if there is too much of a gap. Uh, but, you know, as the company evolves and evolves fast, maybe this gap, if I get to know the partners now, maybe this gap will reduce, let's say, six months from now, a year from now. And then um, that will actually be a good timing. And then we will already known each other and have seen each other evolution. So always keep an open mind, always talk the sooner, the better. Talk to the most people you can, but don't commit too much until you're really sure it's a great match for you and you don't sacrifice something else. Because opportunity cost is a cost. That's fantastic advice. All right. I'm sad to say that we're approaching the end of the podcast. I think it, it's been absolutely amazing. Isabel, for any you know founder or operator that's just been taking notes, about, okay, this is how I need to do. Bravo is doing it that way. I need to do that. If you're looking back and you're thinking, oh, I wish I'd started this sooner or done that differently, what would you advise them? Uh, well, especially if they're in SaaS and have a self-service model, I will advise them to go SEO, SEM in all the countries, even a little bit, <laughs> but very early uh, because, you know, it builds over time. And when you enter a country, it's really hard to catch up on years uh, of other vendors or other different solutions have invested before you. So really start SEO and SEM for all countries as soon as you can. Uh, I will say uh, customer reference is the first thing. It's unfortunate. It's the last thing we do after we talk to customer, but that's the first things to have in mind. You know, I told you with 20% of uh, Bravo revenue in North America, we're not 20% of customer reference. I'm just, I mean, we're just, you know, starting to call them and get them online now. And it would have been much easier to have them on day one. And I will say, you know, the, define your long-term strategy as much as you can early on before you open your offices because the culture, the hiring, you know, it has such a long-term impact. That's not something you change easily. So really try to think ahead, look at the time zone, look at where the market is and really try to optimize for that versus just, hey, I've got a talent or the time difference is better or like that's not the right reason. Yeah. So. You can't wing yeah. it. That, that's very insightful. Thank you so much, Isabelle. Francoise, let's give you the last word here. Any thoughts as a, you know, American operator, European board member, what would, would you want founders to take away from this discussion? That it's totally worth it. Uh, you are going to access one of the biggest, most resilient market in the world. Um, so again, if you, we should all, every founder should have aspiration to be a global founder, I think. And thinking about the U.S. earlier than later is probably a good idea. I tell the same to my American colleague. I'm always the one pushing to go to Europe first. Uh, so that has been a common theme. I, I love that. Ending on a note of ambition and aspiration. This is absolutely amazing. Thank you both so much. I know you're both very busy. 
all over the world, mostly, you know, traveling a lot and whatnot. So really appreciate your time. And uh, hopefully we can do this at some point, maybe in Marseille, who knows? I hope so, one day. Yeah, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having us, Mike. I'm your host, Mike McGraw, and it's been a pleasure bringing you today's episode. Thank you so much for joining me and see you next time.